You are listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Today's podcast is sponsored by Power Integrations, the leader in high-voltage integrated circuits for energy-efficient power conversion. Today's feature interview is with Peter Vaughn, Director of Business Development for Automotive at Power Integrations. But first, here are some headlines we're covering in EE Times. NVIDIA trains LLM on chip design. NVIDIA's latest NEMO large language model, dubbed Chip NEMO, trained on the company's internal repositories of code and text, can answer questions about chip design, summarize bugs, and write scripts for EDA tools. Qualcomm takes on AMD, Apple, and Intel with Snapdragon X Elite. At its annual Snapdragon Summit gathering in Hawaii, Qualcomm showed off its PC-ready Snapdragon X Elite with powerful AI acceleration. Canon LithoTool is years from commercial use, analysts say. Canon's new nanoprint lithography tool will take years to rival the EUV equipment that ASML alone provides. If you own an electric vehicle, you've probably seen plenty of maps of charging locations. But you've probably not seen one map that our guest Peter Vaughn shared with us. It shows electric vehicle charging stations around the island of Manhattan in the year 1906. Welcome to an electrifying journey through time as we delve deep into the history of electric vehicles. In a world dominated by gasoline-powered automobiles, these quiet and emission-free marvels were pioneers of clean, green transportation. It is just such a fascinating aspect of the electrification of transportation because the industry is going full circle. Electric vehicle charging was a thing at the turn of the 20th century. And here we are in the 21st century, and we've gone back to electric vehicles. And that I find really interesting because the industry, if you look at its history, has been incredibly innovative. And that is happening all over again. The industry is unlearning the internal combustion engine because when you electrify, there's all sorts of things you can do in a vehicle you couldn't do previously because you had this big, heavy internal combustion engine. That voice belongs to Peter Vaughn. He's the Director of Automotive Business Development at Power Integrations and has over 30 years of power electronics experience. Most recently, Peter was a Senior Director of DC Power at ChargePoint, developing power conversion solutions for ultra-high-speed EV charging. He holds a Bachelor in Engineering with Honors Degree in Electrical and Electronic Engineering from Harriet Watt University in the UK. Peter and I share a love for EVs that borders on obsessive. So over the next two episodes, we're going to take you on an electrifying journey through time as we delve deep into the history of electric vehicles. I thought it'd be really interesting to look at some of those innovations and the changes in passenger vehicles over the last 100 years or so. But the story of electric vehicles didn't start with batteries and charging stations. It goes back to a time when the rhythmic clip-clop of horses' hooves was the soundtrack of the streets. I have another series of pictures which show the same view in Manhattan where you see the transition from horse and buggy to electric vehicles to the internal combustion engine. And it's fascinating that over a period of decade, you go from seeing everything is horses, you see one or two non-horse driven vehicles to only seeing one or two horse-drawn vehicles. 
And I like that because when technology appears, the transition period can actually be pretty rapid, and that's what's happening now. But those electric vehicles, they came basically from the horse and carriage idea. So that's what they look like. You know, they're big wooden wheels, not tremendous amount of power because everything was horsepower. By the early 1900s, electric cars had become a common sight in major cities. Imagine gliding silently through the streets in a Baker Electric, a luxury electric car with a range of up to 100 miles on a single charge and priced at $850. We intended to place the sound of a Baker Electric gliding through the streets here, but it turns out it ran so quietly that all you heard was the background sounds of nature behind it. These early EVs featured electric motors and pretty advanced technologies, providing a smoother, more reliable ride than their gasoline counterparts. They were lead-acid batteries, but some of them actually had pretty sophisticated features. They had a top speed of 15, 20 miles an hour, so the equivalent of an electric e-bike that you see the kids flying around on these days. But some of them had regenerative braking, which I find fascinating. So there were two pedals on the floor. One was sort of rudimentary drum brake in the rear wheels, and the other one was actually using the motor to provide uh, braking, and it would recharge the battery. And then you had you know, speed controls and reverse, which was all done mechanically, basically a, a lever between your right side. You'd pull it up and down to select speed and direction. There wasn't the big LCD screen on the front, but there was a nice, how would I say, ornately decorated meter that showed you amperes, whether going into the battery or coming out of the battery. And you had electric lights, but they, again, they look like carriage lights, the old ones that originally would have had an oil burner in them. Actually, and it's interesting because if you think about it, a lot of technology starts that way. And I can give the example even for electric vehicles. When we first transitioned to electrification of vehicles in this modern era, they were based on taking an existing internal combustion engine, removing the, the engine and the fuel tank and the transmission, and just replacing them with a motor and batteries and the, the control electronics for them. But it wasn't just luxury vehicles. The Detroit Electric, produced between 1907 and 39, was an electric car designed for the mass market. It featured a conventional layout with a rear-wheel drive drivetrain, and it was incredibly popular during its time. And for an additional 600 bucks, an Edison nickel-iron battery was also available, giving you range of 80 miles between battery recharging, although in one test, a Detroit Electric ran for over 200 miles on a single charge. Top speed was only about 20 miles an hour, but still faster than a horse-drawn carriage and the poor road conditions of the day didn't allow much faster speeds anyway. As the 20th century progressed, gasoline vehicles began to dominate. The discovery of abundant oil reserves and mass production of gas-powered cars shifted the transportation landscape. At the time, actually, the period where electric and the internal combustion engine coexisted, the electric vehicles actually promoted heavily to women because you didn't have this issue with belching fumes and having to start it. It was this quiet, smooth experience, very much like it is now without the need to hand crank an internal combustion engine vehicle. So the electric starter came along and actually I can relate to that because 
I you probably tell from my accent. I grew up in Scotland. It's far enough north that in the winter it gets light at about nine in the morning and the streetlights turn on at three in the afternoon. So it's pretty far north. Yeah. So in the winter it is cold and miserable. And we had an, again, this is a, a British uh, brand. We had a uh, Morris Minor. And it's this car, it was probably built in the 60s, but it still had a hand crank. And I remember when the battery died in this thing or, or got low because it was cold, my dad would have to go out and start this thing and hand crank it. And he'd be out there in the cold, you, you can't feel your fingers, and he'd be trying to get this car to start. And what's interesting on hand crank is if you get it wrong, it kicks back. So he would get whacked on the knuckles by the, the starter handle when the, the engine actually fired and kicked back. And he'd come in, I remember it, because he'd come in sailing, saying things that, <laughs> say, he probably shouldn't have been in, saying in front of his kids. But anyway, I actually have, experienced this the inconvenience of having to hand start an, an engine so the electric starter came along which then required you to have a battery in the vehicle so the electric starter required therefore for there to be a, a, a stored source of energy which was in the form of a battery but fascinating also associated with that is the first accessory was a cigarette lighter. So the electric <laughs> starter gets added to a car in 1912, and the cigarette lighter appears in 1921. And I love that because it's probably one of the few accessories, maybe with the exception of a car radio, that we still see today. So we move forward. So the internal combustion engine replaced the electric um, vehicles of the time mostly because of range. You could go much further, higher performance. And so the electric car disappeared until the 1940s. There were some versions that came out. In fact, one of the first Porsche vehicles was actually an electric vehicle, which I also find interesting. But I mean, the 1930s, car radios appeared. The leaf springs got replaced by coil springs. The ride got much better. 1950s power steering, air conditioning, cruise control, albeit these were all mechanical systems, appeared. And then you've got things like safety. Safety features started to become significant in the 1960s. Yeah, so it was the same thing as you take a horse and buggy, remove the horse, put a motor in there. And <laughs> then we've gone from internal combustion engine, remove the, the engine, put in a motor and batteries, to what's happened now where you've been removed from that constraint because there is no internal combustion engine. The models don't have to support the internal combustion engine version and a hybrid version and a battery electric version. They're all battery electric. And that gives the designers a lot of freedom. You don't have to consider the crash test consequences of having the engine at the front, which is this big uncompressible block. So you get more space. You don't need such a large crash crumple zone at the front of the vehicle anymore. So you get your frunk and you get more interior space for the same class and same wheelbase on the vehicle. Yeah, it's just so funny to think about how we're not creating something new here. This existed 100 years ago, but it, it, we're, we're trapped by that same constraint or that same way of thinking. Those early electric vehicles were retrofitting carriages essentially yes. with an electric motor and here we are doing the same thing these days and 
I don't know about you, but I'm excited to see what happens as designers start escaping those constraints of internal combustion engine designs and thinking about what the possibilities are in in a blue sky world of let's build an electric vehicle from scratch. Do we need a, a frunk? Does it look completely different? There's so many things that we just take for granted that, oh, a vehicle has to look like X, Y, Z. And so much of that was, all of it was built around this gigantic gas-burning engine, yeah? You're absolutely right. I'm excited to see what happens with vehicle shapes. Because in the 1950s, the U.S. car industry did some crazy stuff. <laughs> it was the space era, and they had this crazy um, rear fenders that looked like the back of a rocket. And, and now these days, with the requirement for just some things that won't change, crash test worthiness, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of aerodynamic constraints that get put on vehicles. However, as the cost of battery electric systems falls, especially the battery cost itself, it being the main driver of an electric vehicle overall cost, as those fall, do do we start seeing vehicles with more interesting shapes and styles because the efficiency is not so important now? Right now, it's about getting absolutely the longest range you can from the smallest battery pack. But at some point there will be a segment of the market where you can add some cost, meaning you make the aerodynamics not as good, but you get much more interesting body shapes that are maybe not as aerodynamic as uh, as you would like, or they're not optimally aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. So I, it's going to be very interesting. And we haven't even touched on when you get autonomous vehicles, which also electri- electrification enables, when they're autonomous, that completely changes, even has societal impact, because now this idea of everyone has a car or a vehicle to drive around in suddenly becomes less important if you have a vehicle that's on demand. So I'm, yeah. you, electrification has all sorts of implications. And it's just, I love it. And I've got a, the engineers I interact with at OEMs and the major tier ones and so on in the car industry. Oh man, they are really inventive and creative and excited because this is new. Everything is still up, for, up in the air, ready to be optimized, finding a better way of doing things because the whole powertrain is different. That's such an interesting point, and I think about that moment in time when Tesla became the thing, and Tesla was disrupting the automobile industry, and I think there was a popular conception that the automobile industry, which in this country we just refer to as Detroit, the the big three, that the whole industry was stuck in its ways and Tesla was going to disrupt this and and bring Silicon Valley thinking to Detroit. But the reality of it is that automobile engineers have always been remarkably innovative and design-wise, I think, not at all resistant to change. I think the resistance to change comes from elsewhere. I'd love for you to talk to us a little about your view of that innovative spirit within the automobile industry. Yeah, you can see it 
in the history, I give you a couple of examples. Electronic engine management, for example, was invented in Detroit, 1976. Um, it was called the Lean Burn System by General Motors. The other one which I found very interesting was because it tends to be attributed to one of the famous German tier ones is anti-lock braking, but mm. actually appeared on a Chrysler vehicle in 1971. Wow. It was, but it was mechanical and it failed. It didn't fail as a system. It worked. It, it did reduce the braking distance by a factor of two, wow. but it was mechanically based. It was, there was no electronics. It was a three-channel system, so it, it applied anti-lock brakes, one channel to each of the front two wheels and one for the shared with the rear wheels. But it pumped the brakes essentially at four times per second. So it was very unnerving for someone who was driving it. If you slammed the brakes on, you got this sort of violent sound and people like didn't like it. And so it wasn't a success. You have to fast forward to... The electrification of vehicles when it became a, a, an electromechanical system. That's a perfect example. So it, it functioned exactly as it, it should have. It improved braking efficacy by, yes. by a huge number. But we didn't see it for, what, another 20 years on, on a mass scale because people just didn't care for it, didn't like the feeling that they they didn't have control? Yeah, I think it was hard for people, the salesperson, to articulate it. It was an mm -hmm. option. And then when you experienced it, it was unnerving. Yeah. It felt like there was something wrong as opposed yeah. to it's helping you. Yeah. <laughs> but those things have always, and I, there's a history of experimenting and things don't always work right. Things don't always take the first time round. And this is the other thing I, I love about the automotive industry when you're involved with them. They are deeply passionate about safety. And that is number one. This idea of functional safety, you spend more time considering how things can go wrong than you do about designing the function. To, to absolutely make sure that under any circumstance, the vehicle is still controllable, the passengers, the, the people outside the vehicle will remain safe. So that has also evolved over time. So we have more and more safety features. We have advanced driving assistance systems now and obviously heading towards full autonomy. But when electronics were first added to vehicles, it created problems because you had to consider things like EMI and interference. And that was actually a, a problem with the early um, ABS systems. And this famous reporting from the um, early 1990s, late 80s, where there was a certain stretch of German autobahn where vehicles would just end up at the side of the road because that section of the uh, autobahn freeway was right next to a, a, a field of radio transmitters. And it would cause the brakes to be applied unexpectedly. Wow. <laughs> and it's interesting because I can relate to this story. It's a, a personal experience of going to Heathrow Airport. And back then, this is again in the early 90s, I was driving a fully mechanical diesel-engined Volkswagen Golf, driving up to Heathrow. And just as it is today, the traffic was backed up, <laughs> trying to get to arrivals. And the way Heathrow was set up then, there was the control tower with the radar was literally right at the terminal where you dropped off passengers. And I'm sitting in the traffic 
and out of the corner of my eye, I become aware of this, this gentleman in the car next to me hitting the steering wheel, shouting. And then I realized his blinkers are turning on and off, the windows are going up and down, the windshield wipers are going. And then he would stop and he would look around. And then at about another 20 seconds later, it would all start again. And I realized because I happened to have the radio on, every time the radar went by, there would be this horrible buzzing and the radio would basically wipe out the radio signal. And as it swept around, I hear the radio again. And then I realized that every time it was sweeping over us, it was interfering with his car electronics. So the industry has recognized these things and solved it and put it into the standards that they require from the subsystems now. So now every subsystem in a car goes through an immense amount of immunity testing. And I'm familiar with that because you know I have to meet those standards. Yeah. And it includes special frequency bands for things like commercial and military radar, where the field strengths you have to pass are much, much higher. And when I first saw that and I saw the chart and went, ah, I know exactly why you have much <laughs> higher levels. Because I've, I've seen, seen this the in action. <laughs> yeah. And then the 2000s is really, you, you mentioned Tesla disrupted the industry, but I actually think probably hybrid vehicles were just as significant. They were the precursor to full electric. Yeah. And, and, our, and would you call Toyota the, the leader there even in those days? I would. A Prius is the <clears throat> vehicle that I think everyone remembers. Yeah. Tremendous range. They did a lot. Of, they really optimized the hybrid powertrain, including battery technology. They moved from nickel metal hydride to lithium iron. It's the same time that we went to all of the kind of modern conveniences, Bluetooth hands-free, voice recognition, parking assist, the Tesla Roadster appeared, which I, I also find fascinating because Tesla did something that there was no automotive battery available. It hadn't been conceived. So the idea to just take laptop batteries, essentially, put them into a giant pack, put it between the two seats of a two-seater sports car and electrify it. It was, that was such a leap of faith. If you actually look at the, the success of that, really the reliability and the durability that those batteries actually had, I think that showed the way that you really could have a fully electric vehicle. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about how- I could have continued this conversation all day, and we almost did. So we're bringing Peter back for another episode where he'll bring us up to speed on what's happening today in automotive electrical engineering, how we're making EVs more efficient, thanks largely to groundbreaking innovations that GAN has enabled, why 12 volt is a standard that will likely soon disappear, and we'll even play with shaped charge explosives. All that and more when Peter comes back next time. And that brings another episode of EE Times Current to its end. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Peter Vaughn from Power Integrations. EE Times Current is available through all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us at our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we've mentioned, along with other resources. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.